Let's open up to the book of First John as we continue. We are rapidly approaching the end of this book. We've been in it now for several months. Uh, we've taken a few breaks. Uh, we're going to transition out of this and uh, in a few weeks and sort of transition into a series on biblical community and uh, where we're headed, what that means for our church. Uh, then we'll move into the Easter season and uh, get ready for all that. And then we're, I'm going to be able to preach one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, uh, the book of Jonah, uh, which will begin the week after Easter uh, and to begin to challenge and to speak to our hearts. But this morning, uh, as we look at 1 John, just from a general standpoint, we see uh, in these five verses, John gives some identifiers and some marks and some characteristics and traits for the Christian. Now, last night, uh, I was taking my wife out on a date and we were headed home and uh, she had asked for a drink with some electrolytes. And so I made the unfortunate mistake of stopping at the 7-Eleven on Barry and University at about 8.30 at night, which is apparently where all the TCU kids go uh, to get their beverage for the evening and their, and their other refreshments, I guess. And as I walked out of the truck, there were these three guys that were standing there out front. I don't know if they were dealing drugs or what was going on, but they were in an extremely animated conversation. And the conversation went something like this, and it was really driven by this one individual who had this characteristic and this trait of utter panic and frustration and fear that marked him. And all I heard as I walked up to them into the door and got inside was this. What Kevin's problem is, he needs to calm down. Because when he doesn't calm down, Stacy gets upset too. And when Stacy gets upset, John just loses his mind. And everybody's stressed out. <laughs> I looked at him. And I just kind of did this. And I walked past him as quickly as I could. I walked inside and I'm sitting in line with like 10 other people and he is still just lighting them up like left and right. And he had this demeanor and this, this characteristic of him of panic and frustration. I don't know if he was under the influence of something, but something was wrong with him. And his friends just sort of stood there and were like, they knew it too. But he had this portrayal of something and it made me begin to think about how we portray in our walk with Christ certain characteristics and traits that should be characteristic of us. Maybe at times there are things that shouldn't be characteristic of us. But more importantly, what John does for us in chapter five with these five verses is he lays out some distinguishing traits and characteristics for the believer. And so what I want you to do is I want you to begin looking in verse one of chapter five in first John. And I want to begin with the text where he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. One of the first marks of the Christian is a generally understood statement and principle that there is a real tangible belief in a Messiah, in a God who is saving and redeeming his people and has saved us from our sins. And so John just simply is reminding us that, that those who believe, and so the first mark is this general belief that Jesus is the Christ and he's been born of God. 
Now, I want you to notice something in the very beginning, and really we don't get too far before we begin to get tripped up a little bit. And notice that word, everyone. Everyone who believes this is right with God and has been reconciled with God because of Jesus. But as a pastor, but more importantly, as a follower of Jesus, when I read statements like that, everyone who believes they have the opportunity to be in fellowship with God, to be right with him. I'm reminded of this harsher reality of the culture and the world in which we live in that not everyone has had the opportunity to believe. Not everyone has the opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. In fact, those who study missiology in particular for a living, they've grouped up people in what's known as a people group. If you know what a people group is, if you don't, that's okay. It's just simply a, a group of people that share a common language. They have a shared history and a set of customs that they're used to. And they're familiar with this. And people groups are not identified based on country or, or borders. They're, they're, even within countries, there are thousands of people groups that exist. And so you can travel to a, a country like Zambia and go to different places in that country and everyone speaks a different dialect and a version of that language. And, and you don't necessarily understand everywhere that you go. And these people are people groups. Out of 7.67 billion people in our world, listen to this. Out of over seven and a half billion people in our world, approximately 3.19 billion of those are classified as unreached peoples. And what this means is, is that means that less than 1% of the people in that people group know and understand and have they had the opportunity of responding to the gospel of Jesus. So think about this. In a world of over 7 billion people, over 3 billion of those have never even heard of the name Jesus before. And so when you go back and you see John write this statement, everyone who believes, one of the things that I'm struck with is this reality that's ever before the people of God and should ever before before our hearts and our minds is not everyone has even had the chance or the opportunity to profess it. And so it faces and forces us to wrestle with this reality, who amongst us is willing to go? Our church exists, our, the mission of our church is that we exist to see those far from God come to know Christ. We're a church that is for this city and we wanna be deeply involved with the welfare of seeking the welfare of our city. But we also desire to be a church for the nations and for the world and to be global and not just what happens here. And so we want to hunger and yearn for a heart that lines up with the heart and the desire of, of God and what God wants. And so if there's any confusion about what God wants and what it's going to be like, let me just sort of show us very quickly in Revelation 5, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible that paints this picture where he says this, John writes, worthy are you, O God, O Lamb, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so the idea here is, is that it is God's desire and his will and his heart that those that are far from him would come to know him. And here's the reality that we face. If everyone is going to believe upon the name of Jesus, then we have got to position ourselves in a posture as a church where we are regularly sending people out with the gospel on mission into our city, into the uttermost parts of the world. 
As a Southern Baptist church, many of you may or may not know this, but one of the reasons why, I don't know if I've shared this with you or not, but one of the reasons why years ago I decided that I was gonna be a Southern Baptist in the midst of many of my younger friends who were like, no thank you, I'm gonna move on from that, from that denomination, sometimes for, for good reason. I had many uh, that, that I went to seminary with that are, that are pastoring and leading churches and they, they, are, they are moving the, the churches in directions away from the convention at large. And, and one of the reasons why I have stayed and one of the reasons why I'm extremely proud to be a Southern Baptist, though we don't do everything purpose, uh, perfect, is the crown jewel of, of Southern Baptist life is what we do with our IMB and our International Mission Board. Like it is the very heartbeat of, of what makes us Baptist. And so as a convention, we, we employ about 4,700 missionaries that we send out into the world all over the place. And we fund them and we support them. And so when you give to our church, we, we give a large percentage of our budget that goes directly to funding those types of endeavors and those types of things. And that is good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. But there's been a vision sort of laid out before all Southern Baptists that over the next five years, that one of our strategic goals that we wanna get behind is that they hope to grow the employment of the IMB, of the International Mission Board, from 4,700 by 500 full-time more missionaries being added to that. So that one day we can come before the Lord and we will say, worthy are you to take the scroll, Jesus, who, who is worthy to be slain from every tribe and language and people and nation. We want to be a part of that. And so here's what my prayer has been since I got here back in November, is that God would begin to raise up some of you in our midst and he would call you out for service. Some of you TCU students, as I see God working in some of your hearts and your lives, and I know that you've got this career trajectory and you're thinking about what it's gonna be like in five or 10 years. Maybe, just maybe, what if God called some of you to delay those plans just for a year or two and to go serve with, with the IMB, to go serve in the uttermost parts of the world and to be a part of bringing the gospel to people that have never heard the name Jesus ever before, that you would be that person that shares and that tells, or maybe God would raise some of our youth and our, our students or call some of our children up so that we could get to the place where everyone who believes, they hear the gospel. This ought to be at the forefront of our heart and it's why we should do the things that we do. But he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ and so he brings it back into the church. Now I wanna tell you something about this word believe really quickly. He put it in this, um, he, he parsed it in, in the Greek as this phrase of continuous action. And so the way it literally reads out of the Greek from 1 John is it would better be translated as currently everyone who is currently still believing that Jesus is the Christ. And so what he's doing is he's making this point that, it, hey, listen, it's not about the prayer you prayed when you were 16 years old at youth camp. It's not about the profession that you made when you were a fifth and sixth grader, though those things are good and we want those things. Those things are valuable to us. But what he's doing is he's causing the people of God to go, am I still believing this? Is this still real? And is it taking root in my heart and in my life and, and changed how I think about those things? Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ, therefore they have been born of God. And so we see this first belief in the Messiah, but we see this second characteristic in Mark as characterized as just the rebirth. 
Notice in verse one and verse four, where he uses the phrase, Jesus is the Christ and has been born of God. Whoever has been born of him. Verse four, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes this world. This repetition of words and phrases that he says over and over and over again. It's not the first time that we've seen these phrases. We saw them all the way back in chapter two and beginning in verse 20. And we're gonna see them all the way through the end of the book here in the next few weeks. But the idea of being born of God and the idea of, of being born of him or believing in Jesus, these are two things that are intertwined with one another and they, and they are always going hand to hand. And the phrase born of God, it, it literally points us to this idea of looking to the work of God to transform our hearts. But then when he says that we believe in Jesus and, and believe that, that he is who he says he is, he's looking at the response, the responsibility that requires in our own hearts to believe in the gospel. And so what we have here with this turn of phrase is we have in one side the sovereignty of God, that God is responsible for transforming and changing us, but we are responsible at the same time. And just because God's sovereign, it doesn't mean that I don't have choice. And like Spurgeon says, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are like train tracks that run and they only verge in eternity for us to truly understand how they intertwine. God is sovereign, my friends, but we are responsible. We are responsible to do the work and to commit to the task, but we see this in the context of the rebirth of Jesus making dead people live again. But I want you to see in verse three, or, or excuse me, in end of verse one, beginning of verse two, this idea that we see the rebirth, but we also see how God loves the characteristic is that we should love the Father and the church as well. Notice in verse one, he says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves therefore whoever has been born of him. What that means is that we love God and Christ specifically, but we're also called to a posture of, of loving his church. And one of the reasons why I chose this book way back in November to preach from is because it would make us come to this reality that in the midst of, of change and, and potential change and talking about the past but moving forward at the future is this idea that, that one of the things that's happening and changing is we're an established church and we're revisioning and recommitting. We're honoring our past, but we're moving forward to become who it is that God wants us to be. That in the midst of that, oftentimes uh, can come in, in all places or, or in the past, long before I got here, where we become overly critical of being with God's people. And the idea here is that it is theologically impossible to love Jesus and to hate the church. That it can't be true because Christ dies for the bride, which is the church. He died for us. And so I can't hate something that Jesus loves and then say, I love Jesus, when the very thing that he died for was us and you and me. And so John's reminding us here in this moment that, that we love the Father and that our love of God flows through us into a love for the church. But, but how we've said this over and over again, and, and you'll hear me say this again until you roll your eyes at me, that's when I know that it is stuck in our brains, is that we believe that the best way to love people is in the context of a circle. Now, I wish every week when I was prepping for sermons, I wish every week I would get messages like the one I wanna share with you here in just a moment. 
that embody the very thing that we're talking about up here, that it gets lived out in our community. On Wednesday morning, um, I got a notification uh, through social media from a sweet, sweet, precious mama at, at our church. And she said, I, I wanna let you know something that happened today. And, and basically, um, without sharing who or what, um, this mama's kiddo was, was hurting, physically hurting, and, and they couldn't come to their, their community group that night. Like physically in pain, I can't make it. I, I'm just a struggle right now. I'm having a hard time. So, so what this young lady does is she, she sends a text message to some of her group leaders. She says, hey, I can't make it. I, I'm, I've got this issue. Like I'm hurting. Like I, I won't be there tonight. I'm gonna miss you guys. And immediately after she sent that text message, her phone rang. And the conversation went something like this. Where are you? And can I bring you dinner tonight and come sit with you? And then immediately after that response came back, where are you? Can I come sit with you? I wanna bring you lunch and I, dinner and I wanna sit with you and I wanna be with you in the midst of what's going on. There was another one of the students that texted her back and said, I'm in the middle of class right now. I'm listening to this professor. I'm not listening to him anymore because I'm praying in the name of Jesus that God would heal you and provide for you. And so this mama's sort of watching from a 30,000 foot view, her, her student being cared for in the context of the circle. And, and the message was like, I'm, I'm floored. Like, this is what the circle means. Like, this is the circle. Like, this is what it means to be in community and to one another, each other, and to come alongside and to care and to provide and to go and sit with someone in the midst of suffering and, and in hard times or just being uncomfortable. That's what it means to be in the circle. That's what it means to to love the church and to care. Now, I wanna commend this young lady because she did something that I don't think often intuitively do and we should do more often. That one of the reasons why those needs uh, were, were able to be met in, in, in some regard was that she took it upon herself as a member of this faith family to let her leaders know that she was gonna miss and why. And I've been in ministry for a long time and I know that this, I, I do not take this for granted because it doesn't happen often. When somebody's gonna miss a small group, typically we don't tell our leaders and we don't tell our direct, we just miss. And then sometimes mistakenly, we may miss two or three weeks in a row and then we begin to wonder, well, nobody called me, nobody's caring. And, and shame on us if we miss that, if, if, we, if we don't pursue but what is immensely helpful, there is an obligation and a responsibility for the leaders to care for those that are in the circle. But those that are in the circle, you have an obligation to inform and to tell as well. Like let them know what's going on with you so they can even meet the need. And so she vocalized it, she expressed it in the midst of the circle and then God began to move and God began to make stuff happen in the midst of it. That's what circles more than rows means. That's loving the church as we love God the Father. But I want you to notice in verse two and three that it transitions into a mark of just being obedient to what God says. For this is the love in verse three, the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I want you to notice that phrase, keep his commandments. I, uh, for the past seven years, um, I was discipling a, a police officer who was a deacon in my previous church and we would meet every other week, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening. And our discipleship time looked like this. Hey, how's it going? How, how's, how's work? 
How's your wife doing? How are your kids? Great. Let's open up the word and let's just start reading. And so we, I'd asked him years ago, I said, what book do you want to read together? And he said, uh, I've never read through Romans. I've never, I've never read through Romans and really understood it. Can we read that? I'm like, golly, well, yeah, we can pick an easier one next time. We started seven years ago. We never finished. We never got out of it. You know, I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. Kurt. I can look that up later. I don't know, you know. And we would come to the text and we were talking about our life. And every time that we would talk about life first and then where we were, the scripture was always informative to where we were. And one of the reasons why I loved working with him uh, and he worked with me because he asked the same questions to me as well is we get to this, these places where you know, we would ask, all right, what is God addressing in the text? And how, does my, how do I need to change my life to adapt to it? And for seven years, he had the same response to every time I asked that question, what should we do with this? For seven years, it was the same response without hesitation, didn't flinch. He would just say this, well, if God says it, we just got to do it. We just got to do it. And like, would you, you care to uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Maybe going, no, if he said it, we got to do it. Like, that's it. No, no, no Enneagram number, no personality profiling. No, my dad didn't do this. My mom was absent. No, I'm having hard times at my work. None of that. God says this, like, I just need to do it. And this was a guy who went through immense struggles at times, being in law enforcement and some of the things that he had seen and even done. If God says it, I just, I gotta do it. I've discipled lots of men in, in my life that may be, he may still be, he will live in the history of my mind as my favorite of just making it simple. We just gotta do it. And I'd see him the next week and say, Kirk, how you, how you doing on doing it? I did it. <laughs> okay, man. Keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I love that phrase at the end where he says, keeping his commandments are not burdensome. I used to think for, for most of my life that trying to walk according to the scriptures and in obedience was, it was hard. And it was like God was restricting me from things. And he was keeping me from things. But what I've learned walking with God these years and, and being a pastor and watching other people do this and having a front row seat to watching that is that people that begin and learn the process of delighting in the law of the Lord and the instruction, these are the people that, that more often than not, they find more freedom and walking in obedience to what God has said than those that are trying to fly by the seat of their pants and go in different directions. It's like what David says, I delight to do your will. There's joy in my heart. My God, your instruction, it lives within me. It's this place of, of gospel gratitude for who God is and, and what he has done that, that propels us to wanna walk in the, in the, in the lines of, of, of what God has called us to do. He's not trying to restrict us. He's, he's trying to keep us from harm because his best intentions and what he wants for us is better than what we could dream up for ourselves. And so we see this posture. We see this idea of obedience to what he says. But I want you to notice in verse four how he talks about the victory that comes in doing that. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now that word victory there in the text, that's, that's the word conquer. It's, uh, so it's, where, it's where, that's what Nike means. So the, the Greek word of victory is Nike. You say it a little bit different phonetically, but, but that's what it is. 
And so Nike, they, they ripped off the, the Greek New Testament, right? They, they stole their, their logo and their name straight from the Bible, all right? It means conqueror, it means victory. The name Victoria, it, 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 it develops from that. This, this person who is going to be a conqueror for everyone who has been born of God, been made new by the Spirit of God, is going to overcome the world in the sense of because the spirit is living in you that you have the ability, but, but here's the deal. When God changes us as a people, the change is always slow and steady. It's never rapid and quick. And we become frustrated with God when we start to put God on a timestamp and we want the rapid sudden change to, to be able to speak about. And, and I thought what of an incredible way to illustrate this than when I heard the story about the building in Dallas, Texas that they blew up but did not fall to the ground. Did you guys hear about this story? Like it just demonstrates in every which way how and why Fort Worth is so superior to Dallas in every way. <laughs> they cannot even blow up their own buildings correctly, okay? Like crazy. So you've got this 12-story building. They're taking it down. They're building this, this, this new stuff and they blow it up and then this is what happens to it. Like... Like it's still standing. And so it, it blew up over social media. If you saw this, you can go find the hashtag on Instagram and people are, were just losing their minds. They were going up to it, you know, and they, they're putting their foot up like they're kicking it over and doing all the, like the leaning tower piece and all that stuff, right? Uh, and, and it just sort of caught fire. Well, it, it, it grew because the correction, because they knew they couldn't sneak back in the, in the, in the room and blow it up again. So they said, we're gonna put a wrecking ball out to the side and we're just gonna slowly chip this away. Well, people started making fun of that. And so the best picture that I saw, he was probably a TCU student. He puts this sign up and, and it goes viral, use a bigger ball. It's like, yes, thank you. We're all thinking this. What are y'all doing? And so they, they put this crane up and you can see the, the, the wrecking ball way over there, right? And everybody's like, what, what is happening? Like, why are you doing this? You need somebody from Fort Worth to come over there and help you. We know this. It's probably a, a, an Aggie civil engineer guy that came up with that, right? <laughs> Shots fired, sorry. Here's the deal. At some point, that building's gonna come down and it's gonna come down gradually, so much so that when you look at it, it may be close to getting down now. But demoing that building now, because they're not gonna use dynamite, they're just gonna rock that wrecking ball back and forth and they're gonna slowly chip away at it, gradually, gradually. So much so that you're not gonna notice it. Culture, we, we want to stick the dynamite in there and to watch it implode. And often how, that's how we want people to change too that are not like us. But the truth of the gospel is it's really a little bit more like this wrecking ball and the way that God makes us holy and transforms us into Christ is it's often these slow, steady hits and chips. And he's moving. Most people, they, they don't change with one big jump. Most, most change slow and incrementally. And through the vast majority of church history, this is how God has changed and transformed his church. Slowly but surely, those will overcome to those who have been born of God and there will be victory because of their faith and because of the work of Christ. The gospel is the very thing that enables us to do what one author described as a long obedience in the same direction. 
just slowly and gradually moving forward, cultivating a, a faithful presence, a constant witness. You know, that's the name of the game when it comes to our mission. Did you know that? I'm 100% behind knocking on doors and evangelizing people. In fact, I've invited myself uh, with one of the professors at Southwestern this past week. So next time you go, call me, I'm coming. I'm all for it. And I think there's a place for that still. But I think the vast majority of, of post-church, post-Christian individuals who have made assumptions about Christ and maybe need to reassume and, and to hear the gospel for the first time, for a lot of us, if we're truthful, for a lot of us, the way to reach people that are far from God, it's going to involve a whole lot of intentionality and cultivating a faithful presence in the life of these people and, 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 and getting to know them and building relationships and establishing bridges before them, a long obedience in the same direction, just being faithful, being faithful, being faithful. We wanna see people at this church far from God come to know Christ so that one day, when we're living out that passage in Revelation and we see every tribe, nation, and tongue who, who, who comes before the, the slain lamb who, who is worthy to open the seal and to break it, that it's our neighbors in Fort Worth, it's our friends in the uttermost parts of the world, people that we haven't met, some that, that you, you, God's, God willing, will, will, will see them come to Christ because of your obedience and because of your calling so that they would profess the name of Jesus and, and give their life and their heart to him. He ends in verse five and he says, who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? I spent the first 17 years of my life trying to overcome the world in my own talent and ability and in my own self-esteem. Trying to do it my way. And God got a hold of me through a series of events where eventually he changed me and eventually he saved me and I came to know Christ. 17 years old. And I've watched since then, 20 years some odd later, God's just still steadily moving and he's steadily providing. He's steadily letting me walk in victory and, and letting me experience what it means to overcome adversity and trial and tribulation. This is where we are as a people. And so my prayer as we end this morning is simply for those that don't know Christ first. One, we would love for you to know what it means to follow Jesus. We want you to know the intimacy and the relationship that comes with him. But church, if you're here and you know that, you, you've experienced that, that saving knowledge of Christ. My challenge to us this morning is to, to leave this place and to be on mission. To be on mission means that our mission is the same of Jesus's to seek and to save the lost, to seek after and to pursue those that are far from God. Nathan Randall, I wanna see you pursue those that are far from God this week. Andrew, my brother, I wanna see you pursue those that are far from him so that they might know him. Dan, I, I wanna see you. Go get them, man. Your heart and your hunger for, for the church and your love for the church, to, to let that just eke out into this city for those that don't know Christ. Cindy, to see you in, in your new role and where you serve, to, to see God use you as a witness there, to bear witness to the goodness of our God. Those that are far from God, he's got you right near some of them now for a purpose. 
to seek and to save the lost. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've saved us and you've called us to salvation. Lord, we pray that we would leave here on mission as your church, be faithful stewards of the gospel that you've given us and to walk in obedience. Lord, if there are any here today that do not know you, I pray that they would not wait, not tarry, that they would come to know you, maybe come speaking to me or one of our staff members. We pray now that you would use this, these songs as we end to fuel our worship for the rest of the week, to fuel our obedience in accordance with your word, to be on mission with you. We love you, God. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.